0: Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and this is my co-host, Morgan. Hello. This week, we're going to be talking about the movie Children of Men, which is a great favourite of both of ours. If you've not seen it, it's a dystopian near-future movie set in 2027 in Britain, and it's adapted from a P.D. James novel, which neither Morgan nor I have read, um, but also... It's kind of a loose adaptation. Uh, The director and writers took the concept and then changed it quite a lot. So the idea is that the human race has become infertile and no children have been born in 18 years. And instead of it being sort of a science fiction story about like, why are people infertile? It kind of explores a very wide range of dystopian futuristic themes. So while the general plot is about the kind of cultural fallout of a world with no children and what happens when someone discovers that a woman is pregnant. It's also got all these really realistic aspects of real life dystopia. So there's a lot of very kind of British types of racism in it. There's a lot of kind of anti-immigrant sentiment. What would kind of be the fallout from that? Uh, it's basically kind of imagining the UK in a sort of semi-fascist state. And one of the reasons why we're revisiting this now is because over the past 10 years it has been very easy to see Children of Men come true and it's something that people reference a lot when they're talking about the current political situation it has been for the past few years.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me that this movie came out 10 years ago. Like, we were talking about this before we started recording. I mean, on a number of levels, it's amazing to read. This was 10 years ago, both just for my own life and also because it doesn't seem to have aged at all. There are a couple small things, which we'll mention in a minute, but it's so current. Like, all of the sort of political things that they're saying in the film seem so directly relevant to everything that's going on Obviously, the biggest thing is the stuff about immigration. Um, constantly throughout the film, you have these images of immigrants being deported or sort of being corralled off to be deported imminently. And the big set piece at the end of the movie takes place in a like camp where people are waiting to be deported or just waiting indefinitely for nothing to happen. Like it's kind of unclear, um, and that so resonates with so much that's going on across Europe and obviously in the United States, but specifically within Britain. And it was really chilling to watch it again for the first time in several years. I don't remember the last time I watched it. I've seen this movie many times. Um, And it, it had always been disturbing, but for me watching it this time in the wake of just like all the discourse right now about immigration in the EU and the Middle East, I was just like, oh, my God, like, this is awful. Like, we have we've only gotten worse since this movie came out in 2006. Yeah, I mean, the thing that really kicked
0: off me being like, we have to discuss this movie now is sort of shortly after the EU referendum, the Brexit vote, which we discussed a couple of episodes ago. Um, I just saw people kind of sharing in social media. There's this one image from the movie where the main character played by Clive Owen gets on the bus. And it's sort of one of these scenes where they have world building in the background and they have screens in the bus which show uh, disasters around the world. And like, oh, Hong Kong, New York, everything's going terribly. And then it's like Britain stands strong. And it's this really blatant propaganda message. And it is completely realistic, right? Because you watch a film like V for Vendetta, which is obviously a fantasy, and it has certain political themes that definitely resonate. And you can be like, yes, this definitely is great social commentary for like a silly Hollywood movie. But with Children of Men, you're like, this is real. This is precisely what is happening. <laughs> it's not remotely removed from reality anymore.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what's so... Like upsetting and alarming about it and despite the fact that the plot again is like people aren't having babies anymore which as you said is not something that's really I mean it's talked about in the movie obviously it's not like they just say people aren't having babies anymore and then never discuss it again but it's yeah they have
0: like really solid emotional world building for how people would react so they've really thought that through it absolutely makes sense the way people behave is like a correct extrapolation for what would happen with a mass infertility epidemic
1: Yes. But the story is more about, like, just general yeah, fascism. Yeah, clearly not the point of, of the movie. And uh, you mentioned that the, it's different from the book, which, again, I haven't read. But I remember even at the time when this movie came out, there was a lot of stuff in the press about how it was such a radical departure from that novel. Um, and I think P.D. James, like, didn't mind. I think she liked I the, think she the, endorsed the it because she was just like, yeah. it's a very good film. Right. Like, I, if that's, you know... You were the person who wrote that book and then saw that movie. I feel like you'd have to just be like, great. But the book is basically all about these people trying to solve the mystery of why this has happened to the human race, which kind of makes sense since she was a mystery writer. Like, that's not a traditional mystery story, but the structure of the book, you can see how that would sort of all fit together from her perspective. And... Alfonso Quarone, the director, and his uh, co-writers clearly just decided like that wasn't interesting to them. And I think that was completely the right decision. Like You could tell an interesting story about that. I'm sure the book is good. But from a cinematic perspective, what they do, which is sort of exploring this world and going into the social stuff. So you have Clybone's character, Theo was very politically active when he was younger and then has sort of become distant from that. His ex-wife, played by Julianne Moore, is this revolutionary and she has this group of people who are all considered terrorists by the government and the government is going after them. The government obviously is this very fascistic state. You've got this deportation stuff going on. Um, There are like sort of cults freaking out because of the infertility thing. Like There's all of this different stuff going on and I think that is a lot more interesting than this problem of why is the scientific thing that isn't real in reality <laughs> happening, right? Because all of that is, we can connect to that more. And from a cinematic perspective, it's just easier to show that. And like they, if by just sort of showing these things and not directly talking about them as much, we can still internalize what they're getting at without as much explosive discussion. And I mean, the the plot is actually really simple. It's
0: basically a travel movie. So like, just as a sort of reminder, if you've not seen the movie in a while, Clive Owen's character, Theo, as Morgan said, he's like a former revolutionary slash political activist who, due to his connections with the government, like he now works in like a low level government role. And his brother has like a far higher role. He's like the minister for transport or something. His ex-wife contacts him and is like, we will pay you, to get transit papers for this young woman who needs to cross across the country to get to the sea into a boat. And um, he doesn't know why, but he like eventually agrees, um, partly because he's like guilty and wants a connection with his ex-wife and partly because he does need the money. And when he finally meets this girl, like he goes to this remote house in the countryside where all the rebels are kind of living and he meets the girl and it turns out that she's pregnant. And the rest of the movie is him sort of trying to protect this pregnant woman, both from the revolutionaries who want to use her as an icon and from the government who will obviously want to take her baby away because she's a black African immigrant. So they're not going to want her to keep the baby because that's not a good symbol. They'll want to take it away and give it to someone else or experiment on it. And his he's like not presented as a hero character, but he's sort of forced into this point where the only ethical thing he can possibly do is help this woman, help her get her baby to um this thing called the human project which is sort of an emblem of hope
1: yeah and so there's there's a really sort of classic like hero's journey arc to it too right like at the beginning he doesn't want to get involved with this whole situation and then he does wind up doing that and he has like an older man mentor figure who's played by michael kane who i had completely forgotten was in this movie like oh I my remember god this character i remember him so much because he's fantastic in it <laughs> he's so good, and I, he appeared, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's Michael Caine!" I think I've been so sort of like, like just the Christopher Nolanification of Michael Caine has been like so present in my mind, and I haven't seen this movie in a while, and like he's he's so great, he's so great. And he's this kind of like old hippie who he's friends with through their like old sort of revolutionary days, basically, and he has this mentor, and that's a very sort of classic hero's journey thing too. And then they're basically just like obstacles along the way that must be overcome and so the plot is very simple and the movie isn't over long either which surprised me actually because it feels so massive in scope like it just feels epic in a way and also there's so much not crammed into it exactly but like the world feels so filled out like you really feel like you understand the situation these people are in and the world they live in and the sort of commentary the film is making not in a overbearing way but just what it's saying Um, but I think that that's clearly a virtue right like they're not it's not overly complicated it's very sort of it moves kind of in a straight line.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's um, a thriller. It's like a travel thriller chase story, but it's so kind of multi-sensory and they have such deep world building that it works on a really great political and emotional level as well as being just a straight up thriller that you can watch and be like, oh my god, will he escape?
1: I don't know if I'd describe it as a thriller exactly because, I mean, it is very tense, but one of my favorite scenes is there's like the slowest car chase in the movie. <laughs> yes, yes. It's in G- this movie. <laughs> And, like, it is really tense. And, like, basically what happens is they're trying to, like, escape from the the farm where these revolutionaries are because they figure out that they're up to no good. And the car won't start. And so they're, like, frondling down the hill. And, like, they figured out that they're going, but they can't shoot at them because they have this pregnant woman with them and so they can't kill her. And so they're just, like, running after them. And, you know, he's, like, trying to jumpstart the car and then has to get out and, like, push it. And, like, they're in the mud. Like, it's so great. And I think that that is so emblematic of what's good about the movie, right, is that it is really tense. and like, oh, but it's such a realistic depiction of what trying to do this would actually be yeah, like. like absolutely right? none like... of it.
0: None of it is like stunts.
1: <laughs> Nobody in it is cool.
0: I mean, I get, you can obviously, Clive Owen has sort of got more of a traditional hero's journey storyline, but basically all the other characters in it don't feel like movie characters they do feel like people and some of them are like very atypical characters that you would never see in like basically any film that wasn't like an indie drama
1: (laughs) yeah i think he too and i think a lot of this is down to performance i think clive owen is amazing in this movie oh yeah he's he's so good and a lot of that is he's simultaneously doing a lot and not doing that much which i think because like a lot of really good performances are like that he feels like such a real guy the character isn't really that complicated exactly. Like, the writing doesn't present all of these really specific, complex things about him. But I was thinking this, even during, like, there's a scene really near the beginning where he's hanging out at Michael Caine's house just to establish that they had this rapport. And he's just, like, lying on the couch listening to him tell jokes and, like, scratching his cat. And I was just like, you just look like a dude. Like, he just exuded this aura of, like, a regular person person in a way that most actors in roles have a very difficult time doing, even if they're doing a good job. Like there's just a almost a um, way he's relaxed into the character, but it's really, really convincing even when he's in a stressful situation, which contributes a lot to the, it's not a cinema verite exactly style of the film, but it feels very real. And I think that contributes a lot also to the fact that even though he presents himself very amorally for a lot of the movie. Like he says, I'm just doing this for the money or he's very hesitant to get involved. By the end of the film, you get a sense of him as a pretty deeply good person without him being presented as like a hero, right? Like he is just kind of a guy. But yeah.
0: Who's that's... been sort of beaten down and demoralized.
1: Right. But that's what makes him appealing. Like it's yeah. not overbearing. He just, he just feels good. And I, it's, it's very compelling I also
0: find that to be really a feat because just from that kind of description, there are so many movies that either are about kind of a sad sack alcoholic who goes to help his ex-girlfriend or someone who's like, oh, he's morally, he's not, you know, he's morally ambiguous and he's just in it for the money, but actually he's a hero. And it's like, that is kind of a classic action movie type character. And he is not even, not a single inch of him is like that.
1: Well, I was thinking this watching it, I was like, this should be bad. This shouldn't work at all. It should just be like a white guy goes and, you know, just reconnects with his ex-wife and gets like, it shouldn't work, but it totally does. And it's all, he's also balanced out by a bunch of other characters who are really interesting and compelling, but he's just great. And I think the writing is good too um, in that it doesn't sort of push anything too far and is pretty again just sort of straightforward and not overwritten but he is really really good as is the woman who plays the woman who is pregnant and he's trying to help who has been in almost nothing else which is Claire really... Hope Ashite yeah I think she's done some like sort of British televisions. yeah she's recently. done some
0: like she's done like a few tv shows and stuff
1: yeah but she
0: is. But also, so... this is quite a hard movie to like break out of because there were so many famous people in the cast: Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, and Michael Caine.
1: <laughs> what happens with Julianne Moore? And this is a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but I don't think it's the end of the world if you know this. Um, is that she winds up getting killed a half an hour into the movie? And it's like an hour and forty-five minutes long, and they were promoting her as like she's second built in the movie. Like she's presented as like the co-lead in all the marketing. And I remember watching it and being like, "Oh my god, they just killed Julianne Moore!" It's like it was one of my favorite movie deaths ever. Yeah, like if not my absolute favorite. Like it's, it's brilliant, really well executed, and I think it would be like shocking, regardless. Even though I've just spoiled it, but it's pretty early in the movie, so oh well. But particularly when like seeing it at the time, given the way that it was marketed and presented, it was really shocking. And then. You're sort of thrown off balance because you have this idea of what the movie's going to be, and then it's not that, and then it turns into something else. And I, it's obviously way more interesting for that being the plot, the fact that you have this other girl who essentially becomes the second most main character, and she's so sort of charismatic and um, brings some humor to the film, which is otherwise yeah. There actually, <laughs> well, there. Michael I mean, K. Okay. Actually, yeah, there's quite a lot of like, parts that are true. funny, but. When she and Clive Owen wind up having a lot of screen time together and he is obviously like beaten down and like depressed and she is much younger and is pregnant and so sort of represents this like hope for the future and they wind up bouncing off each other in a really sort of neat way and that dynamic is really cool. And then Chiwetel 4 is also, this is one of the first big things he did and he's great in it also. And Charlie Hunnam, whom I did not recognize, <laughs> no one will ever recognize Charlie Hunnam in
0: this movie. It's so like, amazing. Charlie Hunnam, who everyone knows, is like a dreamboat. I think most people probably know him now from Pacific Rim. But like he's, yeah. you know, he's like he's like a blonde hunk. And in this film, he has his natural accent, which is great. Uh, but he also has like gross dreads. He has like gross white boy dreads, and he's a member of the revolutionaries, and he is one of, like, several characters in this movie who are so authentic, it's, like, painful.
1: <laughs> I was just reading something, and Quorum said, like, one of the things he was influenced by was some movie I'd, I'd never heard of. I'm sure you could look this up. But the, that he deliberately didn't use many close-ups in the film. And I don't think there's a single shot that's, like, a real, like, true close-up on anyone's face. And so, he, because he's not a central character, he's really kept quite far from the camera at all times like clive owen you don't get super super close up in his face but obviously you can tell it's fucking clive owen whereas he's like off in the distance and all you can sort of see is like the dreads yeah i did
0: not recognize him when i was watching the movie even though i knew previously and then i'd forgotten that it was him and then afterwards when i was kind of looking up the cast list i was like I forgot again. I've seen this movie like three or four times and I never know that it's Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> I think
1: I knew too. And was like, Oh yeah, I have no, like no memory of this being the case. Um, so not his biggest starring role, <laughs> but in general, just like a fantastic Cast. I like, oh Peter Mullen too. Like we can move on to this in a second. But <laughs> even like Peter Mullen, who's like a great actor, is in like two scenes. Which I think says a lot about the production, right? That like all of these great actors were like, yeah, I'll be in this movie for like ten minutes. Arguably the
0: third biggest or maybe fourth biggest character in this is played by Pam Ferris. Yes. <laughs> I guess most people will know either as Miss Trunchbull from Matilda or in Harry Potter, she plays not Aunt Petunia, but Vernon Dursley's sister, so like the one with all the dogs. So she plays. She's known for playing these two kind of like cartoonishly nasty like children's film characters. And in this, she plays like a member of the revolutionaries, but she's sort of kind of an aging hippie, but not like a full hippie. The kind of hippie who works for the NHS. Yes. So she's like so. She's like a former midwife who's been brought on because they need a midwife, and she's kind of does tai chi and she's very well meaning, but she's also not like ditzy, but kind of middle aged ditzy. Yes. <laughs> I was just like, this is the best role. Like, I have literally never seen anything in my entire life that has this character in it. Maybe, like, British comedies, right? But then it would be, like, a comedy character, whereas this is, like, a really dark film, and you have this character who, like, she's not a comedy character. Like, she says funny stuff, which is, like, you know, you laugh at her rather than with her, but it's kind of the same with Michael Caine um, and the pregnant girl, Key. But,
1: like, it,
0: I mean, you how did you end up with this character who's so good? Like... <laughs>
1: Well, that gets back to, like, the authenticity thing, is that it just feels so real. And, interestingly, made by a Mexican man. Like, co-written
0: by Arguably the most British film ever.
1: (laughs) Well, interestingly, so they shot it in East London. A lot of it takes place in London before they sort of go off on their, you know, run in the slowest car ever from these people. Um, And... Really, they sort of, like, messed up a bunch of these sets. And I'm sure there was some special effects work, too. But apparently when they were shooting in London, he would tell the production designers to make it look more Mexican. (laughs) Because, like, there's a lot of poverty in Mexico, and he was like, we just need to make it look shitty. And I was like, okay, like, there you go. I guess that would be one perspective on this. (laughs) But I think sometimes you do get a sort of perspective having someone from another country do a film like this, like, there's, um, slightly off topic, but, uh, there's a Michael Hanukkah film, Caché, which is about basically, like, French racism, which is a very sort of, uh, odd movie. Um, but it's amazing. Totally incredible. Very stylistically, sort of experimental. But he really gets at, French racism, I and mean, he's lived in France. It's not like he was like coming in and being like, I've never been to Paris before. But then he also did a film called The White Ribbon that was sort of about pre Nazism in Germany, and it's not as good. And like, he's Austrian, I think. I think the film takes place in Austria. My point is that, like, I think you could sometimes be a little blinkered about your own societal problems, and that sometimes coming in as like an outside person, I think Horon lives in London now, you could see, see things in a light sort of say, like, yeah, this is fucked up. Like, I mean, you guys have this was problems. the film
0: that Quaron made just after Harry Potter 3. So okay. he made Harry Potter 3, and
1: then he made this. <laughs> well, he was developing it while he made that movie, yeah. apparently. And then, like, they were developing it, and he was like, I'm gonna go make a Harry Potter movie now, actually, and then I'll be back for the, like, <laughs> it's just, like amazing. <laughs> what? His career is just <laughs> fascinating.
0: And then it was like, I guess I'll meet Gravity, which took like six or seven years because they had to like invent a new CGI for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they invented a camera for this too. The, it was This was shot by um, Emmanuel Lebesky, who won the cinematography Oscar for the last three years in a row. One of the best cinematographers alive right now. And it is. Ever. So fucking good. Amazing. And when... This got nominated for cinematography. I think got nominated for cinematography, editing, and screenplay, and um, adapted screenplay. And he lost to the guy who shot Pan's Labyrinth, and I was so heartbroken. Like this was the thing that I was the most upset about at the Oscars. <laughs> It was really hard for me. Oh Also, like, oh, just FYI, listeners,
0: at this point, Morgan would have been 17 or 16. I was 17. Yeah. We were right. still in high school when this movie came around. out. This was the first film where I kind of probably even found out what a cinematographer was, because I remember there was all this stuff about, like, the long shot towards the end. But, like, yeah. Morgan was in there. She yeah. was flying over the cinematography Oscar that year. Yeah.
1: But, like, at that time, it was like he had never won one. And this the cinematography of this movie is so amazing. And the... There's, like, a sort of chase fight sort of scene in a car near the beginning. And they – it's there's sort of, like, a three-minute shot. And, like, there's some digital editing, but it's really impressive. And everyone was sort of saying, you can't possibly do this. Like, the camera moves around inside the car. And uh, Lubeski was like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> like, you know. And they – invented this like camera to go in the car there were like four guys standing on top of the car they're like going down the road i mean it's unbelievable <laughs> and there's a the really long shot at the end during the sort of like fight and clive owen is running and trying to find this girl the tech stuff in this movie is just unbelievable the cinematography is outstanding the production design uh as we i was saying about sort of like east london and then like the house where Michael Caine lives also feels so real. Like that is a real hippie dude's house.
0: I just remember watching this film when it came out, when I first saw this film, I was just like, I know all of these people (laughs) because I was raised by activists. (laughs) Like I have gone, you know, and been in a, like had lived in a forest, you know? (laughs) And it's like, I was kind of, the scenes with Michael Caine especially who, lives in this very secluded house with his wife who I think has had a stroke but she yeah. she's basically non-responsive and he cares for her and he has this house which is full of kind of remnants of their older life like it's very beautiful there's loads of photos they um they got the cartoonist Steve Bell from The Guardian to do some like political cartoons for him to stick on the wall and it just looks like a real house which I realize is kind of a simplistic description because there's a lot of movies that have good set design but you know it's so good and the music as well which I think we need to talk about the music in this film, which is yeah, so good well,
1: it's there's almost no original music, yeah. at all they he uses there's not a lot of music in general, actually, but when he uses it, it is so perfect, so I mean,
0: there's ten to fifteen like pop songs used in this movie, right, yeah, which is a lot more than most movies, which will have like two or three
1: yeah. Um, also he recreates the tableau from Pink Floyd's animals at one point which is a great moment but uh, then at the end after she's had the baby he starts using like classical music at moments where people are like seeing the baby or like when it's being born and it's it, so perfect like it just brings this feeling of like oh <laughs> to the to the film in a way that Like, it's all been so gritty and sort of grimy and, like, continues to be that way, but by bringing in that style of music, it gives the movie this feel of meaning and beauty that, I mean, it's a beautiful film the whole way through, but not in that way, and just, like, the timing of it is so perfect yeah and also
0: kind of the classical music isn't um i can't remember exactly what what was it like diagetic anti-diagetic when with like the difference between the music when the music is happening in the film like it's playing on a radio and when it's not so like when the classical music comes in it's like a ray of sunshine like it's not actually there but it's it's a technique to like illustrate it whereas most of the time if not, possibly all of the time when you have pop music in it. Like there's, you know, there's like Roots maneuver and stuff and Radiohead being played by Michael Caine. And then yeah. there's a scene where Clive Owen's visiting his brother and they play King Crimson and it's very posh. It's like this music is yeah. all kind of there and it's all really good choices, but it also feels kind of real.
1: Yes. Um, yes. Diegetic is within. Diegetic. Okay. But yeah, no, and it's, I don't know that there's any like soundtrack or like score music Until you get to the end, although I may be wrong about that, but there's certainly not much. Yeah, if there's some, Um, it
0: must be really subtle.
1: Yeah, which, again, is just perfect. Um, And... And it leaves
0: room for the sound design, which is like yes. incredible. Like so the sound this is one of these movies. There's like a handful of movies where I'd just be like, if you watch this film, you will kind of understand what sound design is, because it's one of those yes. things where like it's kind of hard to follow unless you kind of yeah. Google what is sound design. But like right. this and Master and Commander are like kind of the movies I saw as a teenager where I was like, I know understand what sound design is <laughs> and I'm really impressed. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, just all of the the fight at the end there's all of these you know guns going off and sort of like bomb type things which is when you normally do notice sound design is when you have big fights but it's done brilliantly and then you also have like a baby crying throughout all of that which is hard to sort of like layer all of these things together um but even before that point The whole thing is just pristine like it sounds great and because they aren't using music that's really important so i think people in general don't think about this that much it totally makes sense like why on earth would you think about like the sound mixing and sound design of a movie that you're watching unless it's you've got like inception with like raw sound like going throughout and even that is like a score thing but having the good sound design stuff really has a strong impact on the, your experience of watching a film. And if it's bad, even if you don't notice it, it will, you will notice it and it'll bother you. You just don't consciously realize it. And obviously that's especially true in a theater. But even if you're watching something on your computer or on a TV, it's still true. And with this, it's so immersive and you so feel like you're there. And that has a lot to do with the cinematography, kind of like he's running around through this, like, battle scene. And it's really stressful. And you feel that with the shots, but the sound completely conveys that also um and I think I saw this I was sixteen, and it didn't make any money in the United States like at all i mean it not none, but it really was a flop and I remember going and seeing it at like the local suburban multiplex and at like right after Christmas two thousand and six, and it was packed, so I don't know what was going on. With like Framingham, Massachusetts viewers, but the local newspaper had been like, "You gotta see Children of Men," right? <laughs> like who knows? Wesley Morris endorsed that film, and like it had such a massive impact on me. both as a movie, like it was so moving, but also in terms of like what cinema can be, like what it can do, and I think a lot of that just has to do with how technically perfect it is. Like every single element of it is so well done and all of that comes together to make this like incredible film. Obviously you can have really good movies that, you know, don't have the best cinematography or whatever, but when you have a movie that brings all of this together, like this one does, it's really rare and it's really like an incredible thing to watch. And I remember being in that theater and everyone was so Tense. It was there were a friend of mine and her mom, and I remember just like we were all like curled up in our seats and like leaning forward and like had our hands over our mouths. And there's a moment where Clive Owen basically like brains someone with like a cinder block, and the entire audience was like, <gasps> like all at once like, across the board. Like we were all just like, freaked out. Like, and it was such a sort of like classic, like movie going experience. Like, everyone was so into this. Um, And for me, as a teenager, that was so kind of like, oh yeah, this is what it's supposed to like be about. Um, And I've seen it so many times since then, and I still feel like it's one of the best things I've ever seen. So if that's not like a strong enough endorsement, (laughs) yeah. If you've got to the end end of this podcast
0: without (laughs) having seen it, so um, I'm curious, kind of in the intervening time between when you saw it then and now, is there like a particular element? that like really stands out to you now that you maybe didn't pick up on when you were younger or when you first saw it like even if it's something like politically
1: i think i mean the political stuff i think i understand in a different way just because i i mean i was very politically aware when i was 16 but obviously more so now and just like in a different context um like things have changed As we were saying in some ways things haven't changed at all but like in other ways they have and also I'm just like I do nothing but read about the news so like I'm on top of stuff Um, and so a lot of the kind of like the specific Britishness of like the immigrant stuff like I very much picked up on now and like I would not have at 16 been aware I mean I didn't so I picked up on it the immigrant stuff obviously
0: in a general sense I absolutely picked up on but like I think perhaps because I grew up in Scotland the They specifically select several kind of like Eastern European and uh, like Roma people, yeah. in the film, which I think is at that point, like in two thousand and six, that was more like a racism issue in England and perhaps hadn't really like percolated to Scotland because Scotland's yeah. main immigrant population is like Indian Pakistani. But like now that is a prominent part of our political discussion. A great deal of the Brexit vote was driven specifically by racism against people from Eastern Europe. um and like obviously, no, <laughs> that is one of the many reasons why uh, why children of men came true. Yeah, whereas like in the United States, that's something that people still don't, don't understand. No, don't they're understand. just like theodetics. It's like yeah, yeah
1: white. <laughs> right, and it's, it makes sense that people don't get that, but it's definitely an area yeah. where people just are ignorant. And I mean, that sounds kind of worse than I mean it too. There's no real reason that people would know about that, but like it's just a fact. And like with the Brexit commentary, I definitely have noticed like a lot. Of even Even, like American political commentators, people being super fucking confused. Right, they don't get the Eastern European thing. And on the one hand, again, I kind of understand, but with with some of the professional people, I kind of feel like it's your job to know this. Like you should maybe just like Google, like just pick up a couple things. And not that I am deeply aware of all the nuances of this either. I think there just has to be some awareness that like in different countries there's different a different understanding of race, right? Because race is just a contract construct and so it all just functions differently. And the sort of Roma thing, like we just don't not that there are like no Roma people in the United States, but it's just not the same thing at all. So that was kind of interesting seeing that this time. I'm trying to think if there was anything else that really stood out to me. I mean, I was so upset by the ending of it when I watched it the first time, and like tried to convince myself that it was different than it was. I won't explain exactly what I mean, but like I, I have seen it many times, so that was like not... Because um, the ending is kind of a
0: Rorschach test, because it's like, depending right. on what your personality is, do you think it's a happy or a sad ending? Right. And, and I Morgan of, like, clearly thinks it's a sad ending. Right. I think it's a happy ending. <laughs> An optimistic ending, rather.
1: I think it is, but also we're like speaking in code. But yeah. <laughs> I don't want to completely give away the entire film. Um, I think it's optimistic, but also <laughs> 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 a thing happens that's bad. And when I was a teenager, I so wanted to not think the bad thing happened, and now I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> like that's that definitely was not good. Um, but I think that's kind of. Fine, because um, then kind of the point of the movie is is that some bad things happen but but it's all right For me, I definitely rewatching it this time. there
0: was one really major thing that I didn't pick up on before when I watched it, which is kind of the subtext of the final battle scene because like it's an urban fight scene where yeah. people are being bombed in buildings they're being you know destroyed by british troops and that's something that like is only ever seen both in the news and in western media from the perspective of like being othered we've been at war for functionally 15 years and it's something that happens where british and american soldiers go somewhere else and then there's a war-torn city and it's like this is kind of forcing people who ignore that to pay attention to it because it's happening to your home in this film and it's really like the only time I've ever seen I think an urban battle scene that wasn't sort of a glamorized action movie because like action movies right now are fucking obsessed with urban battle scenes like every superhero movie every Michael Bay movie they all take place in London and New York they all have tremendous carnage and no bloodshed and this is just like the most traumatizing upsetting thing you can possibly watch
1: well yeah and the development process of this film was pretty interesting because it has five credited writers which usually means that a movie is going to be a disaster because it means the script has just been like passed around and around and around and then like people just torn it apart apart so much that it's incoherent and this movie is not like that at all and so I found this quote from Alfonso Cuaron about it which was really interesting um and obviously is his perspective. So the script was originally written by these two guys, and they maintain that like they had a big impact on the finished product. So who knows what actually happened.
0: I mean, for reference, these guys are like sci-fi writers. They did the TV yeah. show The Expanse. And I interviewed them once, and now I wish I'd asked them about Children of Men. Yeah. <laughs> but like the other film they wrote was Cowboys and Aliens, right? And it's quite difficult to like imagine the Leap from Children of Men is like a debut film to this.
1: But so quaron's comment was... So he's asked about the fact there were five writers on the script, and again, basically the fact that usually means that the movie's going to be shitty and this movie is not. And he says, well, that's because these other writers, they did not exist in this movie. It was me and Tim Sexton, who's his writing partner, and Clive Owen. That's all. And by the same token, I'm willing to give credit to whoever really deserves credit for the film. And except for Tim Sexton and myself, for me, all these other writers, it's just studio development work that I'm not even interested in discussing because I don't know what they did and I couldn't care less. I met with one writer who was trying to turn this into a generic action movie, and the other two I didn't even meet, didn't even know existed. But by the same token, Clive Owen, now he was a writer. He got involved in this project with Tim and myself. We locked ourselves in a hotel room, and first we went over his character. And he had so much insight that we decided, Tim and myself, that Clive should be involved with the rest of the writing process, even if he was not, even if it was not about his character. I started to admire his instincts, and I asked him to be involved with the rest of the process. So there are a number of interesting things about this. First, for people who aren't familiar with how writing credits work um, in TV and film, I should say that basically what happens with the writer's guild is that if you do a draft of a project, even if someone else like then picks up the draft and totally rewrites it, your name stays on it. And so a lot of this is sort of to protect writers from predatory studios or directors taking over and then like fucking them, which... Yeah, I mean, there's been like quite a few cases of sort of
0: having to be an arbitration process. So with Guardians of the Galaxy, it was written by a woman named Nicole Perlman And then the new director, James Gunn, came around and he said, I rewrote the whole film and this had nothing to do with Nicole Perlman and I'm taking the credit. And then, you know, the the Screenwriters Guild came in, did an arbitration process over the script and was like, no, she she wrote the original script and you're right.
1: Yeah. And then sometimes you have situations where writers are getting credit when they genuinely had nothing to do with the finished product. Yeah. And, like, those writers obviously still should be paid because, like, they've done a bunch of work on something, but it sometimes is sort of absurd. And so, again, I don't know what happened on this movie. I wasn't there. But I find this scenario kind of fascinating because I'm sure that someone, whoever it was at some point, did try to turn this into an action film, right? Like, absolutely, that happened. Whoever it was, whether it was an executive or this writer, like, for sure, because you can so see how a studio would look at like the generic concept of this, right? Like dude goes through the country trying to get this woman to this like ship on the coast. And Especially faces- if you've just cast
0: Clive Owen who right now, he made this film right. sandwiched between Sin City and a film called Shoot 'Em up.
1: So <laughs> right. Right. And was like, yeah, let's do it. And this is a movie, as I said, which has a car chase that involves him like pushing a car through the mud that won't start. Like that's not, there's a reason it didn't make that much money, and it's because people probably thought it was going to be one thing, and it wasn't at all. I think they've probably done fine because this is a movie that's had a very long life and, you know, whatever. But they clearly managed to, like, get around that somehow. But it would have been so bad if these people had won. The other thing is... Is the idea of like Clive Owen in a room with these guys being like, "Here are my artistic contributions to this." It's like so fascinating to me, and it sounds like directors often will be like, "Oh yeah, that actor like definitely contributed to this in a way." It's clearly bullshit, but this, I mean, and maybe this is too, but it certainly sounds like he's not lying, which is kind of fascinating. And I mean get- I think we both find
0: Clive Owen very interesting as an actor, yes. right? He does yes. like a pretty wide range of work and a lot of it is really trashy. He doesn't really have like much of a public presence and he has like a very chill normal personal life, but occasionally yes. he'll do a film where you're just like, "Oh, okay, he's uh he's a genius."
1: I saw him in like a Pinter play last year which was not a good production, but the fact that he was doing Pinter was kind of interesting. I try to like I don't know what his breakout was cuz he's been around for long enough that like we Or we wouldn't know.
0: He's a little bit like Tom Hardy but like less of a fuck up than Tom Hardy because he like has a resurgence every five years and then he'll sort of dial it back or make something that's a flop. So it's like he's not doing the kind of career thing where he'll do like a, he'll really be pressing himself to be high profile or do really good indie jobs.
1: Yeah, because the thing that like, I think the thing I probably saw him first in I can't remember the chronology I mean, Gosford Park came out in 2001 Right, which I didn't see that until later. But that is the other thing that I think of as like the two Clevoin performances that I love or like this obviously and that that I love the most. Like he is so great in that movie. I remember watching that and just being like, he's so sexy. <laughs> I love him in that he and uh what's her name? Maybe we should do a Gosford Park episode. Um, we should totally do a Gosford Park episode. <laughs> I've seen that movie like five times. I've seen it on the big screen. I went to a screening at MoMA. Like I was so happy. I was just like this is amazing. <laughs>
0: I want to rewatch oh. that because it's really fascinating in the context of Julian fellows who made Downton Abbey because yes. it is conceptually very similar to Downton Abbey, politically but the precise Robert
1: opposite, Altman. and I strongly suspect that film was rewritten by someone else. Oh, yeah. No, Robert Altman rewrote it. Like okay. this, is, this is an accepted fact that he just rewrote it, and then Julian fellows won the screenplay for the Oscar. <gasps> the that Oscar. rat bastard, <laughs> which is hilarious. Like everything about that is funny. But anyway, yeah. Clive Owen, great in that. And then he's done just like so much garbage. And then was on the Nick recently, no longer on the Nick. Um and I watched one season of that and then I gave up in season two because the writing got so terrible. But um he was so good on that show and I kind of was like, Oh, you're doing a good thing. Like, this makes me happy for you. But like he could have been James Bond. We were just discussing this. And I'm sure he could have gotten that role if if he had sort of Done things maybe there.
0: maybe if Clive Owen had dated the 2005 version of Taylor Swift, he could have got bogged <laughs> just like Tom Hiddleston. If he'd really pushed himself publicity-wise, yeah, if he'd thrown himself on the sword, what would that yeah. be? Madonna? Uh, if he'd stolen Madonna from Guy, She's too, too old. I don't know who the... They're the same age. They're both 50.
1: No, yeah. I know. My point is that Taylor Swift is, is younger. Oh, okay, yeah. He would have had to have dated yeah. Billy Piper. <laughs> Yeah, and he chose
0: not to do that. Yeah, and his life he has is- a stable marriage with a normal woman. Yep. <laughs> not the Billy Piper's not normal. Listeners, you know what we're getting at. <laughs> if there's anyone who's listening to this like two years from now, they're just going to be like, what the fuck are they talking about?
1: <laughs> it was an eventful time.
0: Okay, so we're kind of almost at the end of the podcast, but I've just realized there's something we didn't mention towards the beginning when we were discussing kind of the world building and the authenticity of the film. And that's kind of how it dealt with technology because socially and politically it was very prescient but because they weren't putting a huge emphasis on tech like most sci-fi movies they didn't predict stuff like say drones.
1: Yes. Well, that's what's what's so interesting about that is that then it doesn't feel nearly as dated as some other movies that tried really hard to do that. Yeah. And like they have com- he has like the computers in like his office which they show for like 1 second are clearly meant to look mod And they actually look fine. Like a lot of the time when movies do that, they try too hard. And then you watch them literally three years later and it's like, oh, no, that looks really dumb now. Um, But I I thought they looked fine. And then like the his cousin's son, when he goes to try to get the papers, has like a weird, weird, like he has a game like it's a game with little
0: hand things.
1: Yeah, that's also somehow connected to his brain. Um, But But that's like a background thing. Yeah, and that seems very realistic and, like, it still seems futuristic. Like, we we don't have that. It seems like it could be something that would exist. But I thought, like, a half an hour in, I started thinking they don't have cell phones. Like, I don't think anyone in this
0: movie has a cell phone. And I think that must have been intentional because people had cell phones in 2006. And this has prevented it from dating.
1: Right. And it was fascinating because, again, it doesn't, like, I noticed that. But it didn't feel like I think I think because they didn't have them, it actually made it age better. Because if they'd had like flip phones. Yeah. Right. We would both have been like, oh, this was made in 2006. And because they just sort of sidestep it. Like, of course, at some point, this movie's going to look like it was made a long time ago. But you really wouldn't be able to tell particularly but it's i mean more... even like the fashion right because right.
0: like like it... the fashion does not date because like okay so like the born identity came out at basically the same time as this film and like the fashion in that film has dated like hell right i mean it doesn't yeah. i don't mean in the sense that it looks bad but it is dated a lot whereas in this film it looks contemporary because they've managed to create a kind of style for each of the characters that is really distinctive and kind of worn in and realistic but none of it is like trend specific enough that you can nail it down as like here's some mid-2000s fashion
1: right like he he spends a lot of time in a very generic like long coat and like a button-down shirt and that's like it and then um the pregnant woman has a sort of like top that's designed to sort of cover up that she's I mean, pregnant. she's
0: kind of wearing almost like a cloak, I, which sort of plays yeah. into the way they sometimes have references to like the Virgin Mary. So there's a scene mm-hmm. where she's introduced in a barn, and like there's kind of references to that later in the film.
1: Yeah, but I was just amazed by the degree to which I felt like I could be walking down the street in the movie and not feel like it was weird. Except for the cell phone thing, which would completely change the nature of like them trying to find these people. And yet it doesn't like this isn't a criticism. It doesn't like make the movie worse at all. It was just so funny to think that like now I think if they were making that movie now, they couldn't do that because our phones are such a like integral part of I mean, how we I mean, what you'd have to right? do is you'd have
0: to have it that none of them can have cell phones, because they're too easy exactly. to track. Because the thing, the one the, kind of one of the things that didn't fully predict was like the level of surveillance, or they probably right. just decided to not include that. For listeners overseas, London especially, but Britain in general, is like so heavily surveyed. Probably more so than the US, like in the it case is, of London, yeah. which has more CCTV cameras per person. And our
1: privacy laws are going down the plug hole. No, the UK is absolutely worse than the US about surveillance, which is amazing because we're bad, but you guys are worse. Yeah. Well,
0: I think it's kind of fascinating to see that, like, you know, the whole Edward Snowden thing, which, like, in the US, it's like, we've just revealed this thing has happened and it's a scandal and we're going to debate it. That's something that our likely future Prime Minister Theresa May is openly trying to push forward in public. <laughs> it's one of her policies that we should be agreeing with. And it's like, what? wait, what? Shouldn't you be doing this as a clandestine evil thing, rather than trying to get to vote for it? It's sort of like how her other policy is, we should get rid of the Human Rights Act, because nobody likes privacy or human rights.
1: Yeah, so in some ways, this movie really did, you know, hit the mark. Not that they discussed that specifically, but they nailed that one. But, uh, but the surveillance thing, not so much. Um. But that again, isn't something that you think about at all? No. Real watching it? I mean, if- I, I was kind of... It did occur to me because I was trying to think of things, right? But that's part of the genius of the movie is that it's so well done that you're not gonna... Yeah,
0: you know. and I mean, it just generally ties into the fact that it's not essentially a science fiction movie because if you're making, like, Gattaca or whatever, obviously you're gonna emphasize technology. But if you're making a film that's more about, like, social atmosphere, you don't need to care about what cell phones look like in 2027.
1: Right. I mean, I just saw... Catherine bigelow's movie strange days as i referenced a couple weeks ago and like it's hilarious i mean it's fine like the this is what happens when sci-fi dates but like ray fines has this weird thing where he can like see into people's memories and it's this like basically like just web thing he sticks on his head and i was like oh no (laughs) like that's not (laughs) that doesn't look real i don't think so
0: i mean what that looks like is there's a kind of um i follow kim kardashian on snapchat (laughs) very good Snapchat. And she has like a light mask. That's like a torture mask that she puts in her face. And it's got like little light diodes. And it's like, that's probably what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. He was wearing like a
0: rejuvenation mask.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Kaiba would no rejuvenation in this film. He's just like, he's a human crag. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. I believe it does. Um, If we have not made it clear enough and you haven't seen this film before and you're still listening for some reason, Please go watch this movie. It's one of my very favourite films of all time. We will be bringing you a podcast at some point in the next two weeks. We're not sure when exactly. Because yeah, we're, we're having both-
0: to take a break from our regular Monday uh, updating for like the next two weeks because we are both flying around various parts of the globe. So, yes. so we, cannot, we cannot record. There's definitely not going to be an episode next Monday, but there will be one the monday after
1: yes probably just us talking about nothing except where we've been but you'll be able to experience it so the episode after that we have
0: planned it is going to be incredible we have something very exciting planned for you
1: make up for the break yes um and then we'll be back to our regular programming so hopefully you guys will all enjoy the month of july Uh, And we will be back at some point within the next couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. Otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. See you soon. Bye.